0: Welcome to the Sustainable Future Podcast. I'm your host, Annie. In this podcast, we investigate and discuss the latest topics in the environment through the mindsets of nonprofit founders, environmental activists, scientists, business leaders, and many others. Join me as I go behind the scenes with the experts and rising stars who are leading advances in sustainability. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Kevin Madrigal of Farming Hope to the Sustainable Future Podcast. Farming Hope is a nonprofit community organization providing transitional employment and training in the culinary industry to low-income people in the community. Hi, Kevin.
1: Hello, Annie. How are you doing? I'm
0: mean, doing good. Thanks for joining us.
1: No problem. Such, such an official introduction. I feel so, so
0: official. <laughs> yeah, so to start off, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: yeah happy to so my name is kevin madrigal um i am originally from south san francisco california which is its own city that has a very original name um it's home to the Sa- san francisco international airport uh i do not have like a small sister comp a small sister city complex um let's see i'm i'm from a family of mexican immigrants my family moved here about 30 Years ago from Mexico, and I was the first in my family to actually attend a four-year university and get a degree, um, which is really cool. I'm super, I feel super lucky and privileged to have had that opportunity and to follow through with it. Um, and like you mentioned, I am one of the co-founders of Farming Hope, which is a cool nonprofit that I really love. Um, and that disclaimer: I helped found and, and worked for three years, and I'm no longer. I'm actively working there though I do serve on the board and as an advisor um, yeah I think I'd, I like to describe myself as like an advocate for food justice um, and somebody that's just trying to think about like wh- wh- what are the communities that need our help and how can we help them the most.
0: Maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, like how your studies at in college kind of informed what you're interested in today.
1: Yeah definitely. Um, so. One, I guess one funny thing is, uh, so I grew up in South San Francisco, which is also the home of Genentech um, and and the birthplace of biotechnology, that's in air quotes, because, well, I mean, it's true, but, you know, I don't think anybody can really argue it. Um, And when I was first, when I first attended Stanford, I was interested in being a bioengineer, and that was actually like my first major, like what I studied in. Um, And the idea was just, I wanted to do good for my community I wanted to like use my interests in math and science to like design medicine or design therapeutics for people um that needed them and I got all the way up until my junior year at Stanford when I realized like this isn't for me um I I I think it's a really noble industry and the people that are in it are very intelligent and do really care about the solutions that they're making but it just wasn't the right fit for for what I wanted to do with my career so that was an interesting switch um, I ended up switching over to human biology and I focused kind of on community health issues and um, so I, while I was studying humbio I got to meet a lot of really great professors and a lot of really great people one of which is Maya Adams who I think I always talk about with my like origin story of how I really got into food but she taught an in intro sem um, that I took my sophomore year that was called intro to child health issues i believe i think it was like critical it, intro to critical issues in child health um, and half of the class was lecture based and we would talk about everything from like the familial issues community issues government issues that all impact um, the environment that a child grows up in and what kind of health outcomes they have. Um, Really specifically thinking about like the food that they have access to or the food that they eat, the nutrition, the quality of the food. And it was really interesting. I think there were a lot of, there were a lot of factors that I think I had grown up knowing and understanding my whole life, but never really like putting words to them. Um, Like I mentioned, like I'm from a first generation like Mexican family and, and I think it's just through my lived experience it's pretty obvious like how my parents like grew up in areas where they like they got like free food or donated food from food banks and they shopped at certain places that didn't always have like the best quality or or whatever you would you would call it in terms of like groceries and i think it's yeah there's definitely a lot of conflict and tension that i was feeling around like my own background and upbringing um and just like what the like recommended guidelines are even by just like our government, the USDA, by my plate, by all of these different sources. So um, that's that's where I got started, like interested in this idea of like food as medicine. And so the other half of the class, we were actually cooking. There was the the teaching kitchen at Stanford. I think our class was the first one, like our, the inaugural class to use it. Um, it's super cool that it's taken off since then. Um, yeah, if, like if if there's any Stanford students listening, I definitely recommend like trying to take a class. In the Stanford Teaching Kitchen at some point because it's really awesome, um, and that's how I started to just becoming just to like really learn and understand more like. Oh, these are these foods that I can cook and I can serve to my community and positively impact their health. Um, and they not might see it like right away, but it will. Like all the data shows, like the nutritional the nutritional facts of the food shows, um, and there are ways that you can do it, um, where you're cooking foods that are still. I call like culturally informed or still relevant to the cultures that those people are from so I think through that through taking a bunch of other classes I definitely got more exposure to this idea of like examining community health what are the social determinants of health Um, how are there different communities that have different access to health I also took uh, Christopher Gardner's class food and society that was a really cool opportunity to just like Take a take a little step back and look at the whole food system from from the production from what what incentivizes the production to where it's sold to like the politics around food um and who and you know what what the diets specifically are from person to person so yeah there's like definitely a lot of different ways at stanford there's many, many many experiences i won't go on for too long
0: i think it's so interesting how Um, in your experience, like your, uh, your academic uh, learnings at school kind of intersected with a lot of your uh, social identities and how you kind of um, use that to try to benefit the community in some way, which I think is really special.
1: Yeah, and I think it definitely wasn't always, I don't know, when I was going through it, I think now that I'm reflecting on it, it's definitely, it feels more like seamless or intentional, but when I was going through it, I feel like, I definitely felt alone. And I was like, why doesn't anybody else like care about this issue? Like even in Christopher Gardner's um, food and society class, I remember if it was like a class of like 35 people, there was maybe like five people of color and everybody else was white. And I think it was it was like weird. It was just like a, a weird thing to be about, to be like sitting in this room and then to have like an issue that represented like Latinx identity come up and then be expected to be like, to speak on this thing. Um, and I definitely, yeah, it took a while for me to like really connect the pieces. I think it's it's easier for me to, to talk about it now as like, it was all really intersecting, but at the time I was super lost and I was like, just kind of juggling all these different thoughts and all these different ideas and really a lot of like conflict and tension about like, oh, this is, I'm learning these practices and this stuff at Stanford, um, like an institution that's, you know, like praised around the worlds. And, but then and also like my my reality and where I come from like this isn't really knowledge that we talk about, or this isn't knowledge that's widely available, or knowledge that is, I don't know, understood, accepted. So there was, a, there was, yeah, I just wanted to say that, mention that.
0: <laughs> right, and in terms of kind of um, addressing this tension that you felt, was there like a moment or an experience or something that kind of helped you make a little bit more sense of that?
1: I do think that there was a, like a class and an experience with a group that that kind of tied things together and so i think my junior year i think my junior year i started taking classes at the d school with the feed collaborative or sorry, the feed collective which i don't think they exist there anymore i think some of the original staff um it was matt roth and deborah dunn that taught those classes um i think they might still be around but i know that both of them have a lot of other stuff that they're up to but basically at the d school we started to connect these ideas around the food food system and thinking about like stakeholders and like who is affected by this specific issue, and how can we learn from them and learn from their learned experiences? And I think for me, that was the first class that I took. That was like this is the approach that I want to take, and this is the approach that sounds most true to to like me. Like talking to these people, talking to my community, and learning about their experiences and learning about what they value, how how their life is impacted by food or by whatever. Um, and using that as the information to guide you towards something better towards a solution. I think like once I discovered like I, I mean as a uh, as like what, what's the word I don't know as um as cliche as it sounds like once I discovered like human-centered design for me it was like oh like this makes sense and I think you know there's there's a lot of parts of it like the, the excessive post-its and you know all this like crazy stuff that I think is associated with it now that It's easy to like meme it, but I do think at the heart of it, um, the idea of centering whatever you're working on, whatever type of solution you're working on around like the people that it affects the most is really important. And sadly, unfortunately enough, like isn't common practice. So that's something, yeah, to start when I started to take classes with them, I think that was kind of a really big turning point. Like while while I was there, I ended up signing up for like a social entrepreneurship class, and then me and a, a few friends. Um, One that I had known from before and two that I had met, like ended up doing a little project where we tried to make, we we, like, we came up with this idea. It was called like Create Cuisine. Um, And it was basically like, do you remember those, those handy pack snacks with like the cheese dip and the crackers? Yeah. We were trying to like design like a healthy version of that, but that was also like engaging and fun. So we would do like uh, rainbow carrots and hummus. I love that yeah and my niece at the time I think was like eight or nine years old and she was in elementary school and we actually like talked to her and talked to her classmates and then like I made a bunch of the little like packs of the snacks and we took it to her classroom and the kids like tried it out and they would like build stuff with it and eat it it was like a fun experience and I think that for me was also really Um, like affirming that this was the right way that I wanted to go about like studying issues in my community and trying to actually create a change so that was a cool experience that I got to do while I was at Stanford too that I think helped me get on this path
0: right yeah I think like design and kind of focusing on um, people is really a good way to approach a lot of these social issues now I want to talk a little bit more about um, farming hope so After college, you founded this wonderful nonprofit. Um, I would love to hear about what inspired you to start Farming Hope, and maybe you could tell us about how this all began.
1: Definitely, Um, so I'll give a quick intro to Farming Hope um, and I'll do a plug, it's just farminghope.org if anybody wants to find out more info and our our mission, our kind of definition and, and mission or what we do is just Farming Hope is a garden to table job training nonprofit. And we offer paid empowering transitional employment in our garden and kitchen with formerly incarcerated or unhoused neighbors. So from from the beginning, we wanted to specifically work with folks that we felt faced a lot of barriers to employment. Um, And this this group of people really was uh, folks that have a background in homelessness or incarceration. Um, especially in America, it's just like, once once you don't have an address or you don't have like a previous employer to vouch for you, it becomes really really difficult. There's some really significant barriers to finding employment, um, and so it started um, when I was like a volunteer slash TA leading gardening hours at the at the Stanford farm. Um, yeah, I was I had been. I had taken like a Patrick Archie's uh, sustainable agriculture class and was helping out doing like leading some of the volunteer hours on the weekends. And a guy that had been in one of my design classes previously, who I hadn't really talked much to you know, but I knew that he cared about like food. Um, His name is Jamie Stark. Uh, He came to volunteer one day and I remember like I remember the first day we talked about this because we were shucking corn like we had this like nice like cool variety of corn because we were doing a bunch of corn tests back in the day and we were just like shucking it and taking taking the seeds and saving the seeds for the next year um and Jamie started talking to me he was like hey like I have this idea uh um I've done this like work in El Salvador and basically want to connect like homeless folks that that want to garden and want to work to like the garden and and try to like make some sort of employment out of it and I was like huh that sounds interesting (laughs) um and at the time, I had actually just started uh, my co term, like graduate degree for Earth Systems. Um, but to be honest, like I really wanted to take a break. I just felt like I was running on empty after finishing undergrad. And, and I just wanted to kind of like take a step back and return to that later. So we talked more about it. And, and Jamie, I mean, Jamie ended up becoming uh, one of like my closest friends that I still talk to today. Um, but he had done some missionary work in el salvador for two years and on a project called uh sembrando esperanza which in spanish just literally means farming hope um and it was a really amazing project where it was essentially like a big farm that was run by homeless individuals that would come and work there and it was kind of like rehabilitation through employment um and he wanted to do that uh, but here he wanted to do that in the us and he felt like a really strong calling to do that work um so we talked about it I was definitely on the fence for a little while. I was like, I don't know, this sounds kind of crazy, like starting up a thing from scratch. But at at that time, the Feed Collective was doing like a business incubator through the design school. So basically you could apply for some funding and then they would provide mentorship to do it. So this was in the summer of 2016. So I ended up talking to him and and agreeing to like join on board at least for like the application to, to do it, to see if we would get accepted. And lo and behold, we got accepted and we had that first summer of of funding so that we could, you know, actually focus and work on it. And that's how we got started. So it was really like literally like born, born bred, like raised by the Stanford community. i super grateful for those opportunities that were presented to us. And I think for all those organizations that take chances on us and to work with us, I think I think it speaks a lot to like the opportunities that are available at Stanford, but I think also to like their interest in doing more on these social issues. Um, So that's how we started. Yeah.
0: Yeah. um, Thanks for sharing that. I love that story of you and Jamie on a Stanford farm shucking corn together and coming up with the idea for Farming Hope. So just to clarify, uh, is the idea behind the organization that we can help provide employment or we can help provide rehabilitation for a lot of these Um, like low-income unhoused folks through training in like a lot of these cooking or gardening programs? Yeah so
1: the, the idea really is I mean it's definitely evolved a little bit over time and I think our understanding of it has changed a lot but the idea is like in America you really have to have a job or like you know a steady source of income and when you are coming from a background where you've been houseless or homeless and either like literally living on the streets or staying in shelters and not having like a physical address or a place to take care of yourself or you're just coming out of jail and facing similar barriers might know you might not like have connections like that is one of the most like extreme cases in which like one can experience poverty just because there's almost no, there are a lot of times are almost no opportunity to get employment. So the idea is to work with these people that are motivated, that want, that recognize like they're in this place, but want to get something better and train them in the kitchen and in our garden um, on both on hard skills and soft skills. And we say that because, yeah, we like, I like while I was there, I taught them, you know, how to cut, how to cut an onion, how to julienne an onion, how to mince an onion, do all these like, you know, specific things. But there's a big portion that I think a lot of us are used to and take for granted, which is the soft skills like communicating with a manager, showing up on time, communicating that you have an issue that you might not show up on time, Um, like all these other little things that surround our employment that as people who are like sustainably housed or live at home, never experienced homelessness or incarceration, don't really think about. So there's just all these little barriers. And I don't know, from the get-go, we just, we recognize that there are some, there are some really amazing, stellar people. Not to say that like you shouldn't expect that, but I think that's that's just what happens. I think given our societies, people don't expect that from that community, but there's just amazing people everywhere, um, and that does not exclude the homeless and community or the formerly incarcerated community. But we felt like the the way that the workplace was set up, it was excluding those people. So yeah. Um, Does that does that kind of clarify?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, The soft skills part, that was something that I didn't expect at all. But I think that is so important, especially for people who are looking for successful employment. And also, like, I think you're spot on with the fact that there's so many great people out there. And like, um, like, once you get to know them, I think, like, really just taking a chance on these people and giving them opportunities for employment is so important. Um, I did want to ask you a little bit more about what do these programs look like? Like, what, are the, what is the structure? How does it operate? Yeah. Yeah,
1: it has evolved a lot over time because literally when Jamie and I started Farming Hope, we were employing people to come help out and harvest at the Stanford farm. <clears throat> like we were, through our own funding, we were literally paying them like an hourly wage to come and do that. Um, and in the beginning we had this really we knew that we wanted gardening and farming to be a part of it big part of it but there just weren't that many outlets or ways that we could do that in like a financially feasible way so i remember towards the end of our summer when we were trying to raise funding to continue to work on the project um i like brought up the idea of doing like a pop-up dinner like a pop-up brunch um where like i work with our participants who we call apprentices so i work with our apprentices um, to like make a big meal and then people come and it's like a suggested donation or there's a certain amount of money that you need to make. And <clears throat> up until that point, <clears throat> that was the most like popular event that we had. We partnered with like a local church right off of campus. And we had like 60 people show up and, and everyone was like so excited about this idea of coming to support this little project, Farming Hope, to help people working their way out of homelessness and like actually be able to eat. and I think one, one really beautiful thing that Jamie and I recognized early on was like, because we didn't necessarily like bring so much attention to the fact that our apprentices had gone through these experiences in the background. A lot of times in the beginning, people would come up to us and be like, wait, so who's the person that's like homeless right now? And Jamie and I really liked that because we were like, aha, like, this is kind of challenging people's ideas because I, they probably came here thinking like, oh, we're going to be able to tell like who's, who's homeless and like who's working out their way out of, but sometimes people would be like actually upset because they're like, I can't tell like who's a participant. And we'd be like, that's kind of the point. Like, like these people, they're not different from us. They just don't have the same support network and the support structure that you and I have. Um, so the actual programming has changed a lot, but it's essentially we sell food. We've always sold food um and train people along the way so we've sold food through pop-ups we were selling food at a farmer's market um, like farmer's market stand we've done some private catering we've done some like big events um we've done like small dinner events at people's houses uh, but the biggest thing that we ended up doing was opening up our first cafe in san francisco in in um, cooperation with manny's um Unfortunately, it's, you know, things are a little different right now because of the pandemic. But uh, when we opened there, we were functioning like uh, six days a week and selling meals for breakfast, lunch, um, and doing like snacks in the evening and we were hiring anywhere from like three to five apprentices at a time, um, and giving them all part time work for at least three months. And the idea was like, in those three months, we could kind of provide them these opportunities, provide them these skills, and then actually start looking for other places to transition them to so that they could have full-time employment somewhere else if that was their goal. Um so yeah that's that's kind of what the employment like looked like. And all the while, you know, it was a lot of checking in. We had um like a program director at one point that was helping with like some of the soft skills and and just thinking more about like what we call the wraparound services. So everything that is supporting that individual finding employment.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that these apprentices cook a lot of food that we that we sell in different venues um i'm curious who trains these people
1: yeah that was me <laughs> so, so in the beginning uh, jamie and i took on the roles of um he was essentially like the executive director development director director of development and i was the culinary director um Jamie didn't really have any background in like food preparation Um, and I did (laughs) and that was I mean that was part of the reason that drove me to the work so in the beginning it was really like right right when we started it was literally just like super practical like okay this is our menu this is what we're going to make this is how we break it down Um, and just teaching people kind of in a similar way that I was taught like this is like you know this is like, like the time that we have for these five hours to work together this is the thing that's going to take the longest this is how we break down into into steps so i would always have like prep lists and ingredients and everything listed out um but to be honest a lot of a lot of it, it like it can be in theory you know you can be in a classroom but i think food is one of those things that like just through the hands-on training like you learn so much that's that's how i learned in it um so actually like right after i did my undergrad i worked at schwab executive catering services like on stanford's campus That was my first food gig um, and I learned a lot there and then I got to do some like stages which are like unpaid internships at different kitchens around the bay area which where I learned a lot more too and so yeah we just kind of like started doing that and developing best practices and looking at other programs that were doing similar stuff Um, like at some point we got we were accepted to a startup accelerator from a from a nonprofit called Red F, which specifically does work on social enterprises and getting people back into the workforce. So there was like a lot of resources that we discovered along the way to kind of like tweak our curriculum and like what we do, what we did. Um, but yeah, that was me. I was in charge of, of like, <laughs> yeah. overseeing like what how how we trained them, what they learned
0: was making through something that you learned when you were young?
1: Um, not really. When I was young, the most that I had ever do is like make scrambled eggs and eat them with ketchup. <laughs> um, <gasps> I see. Yeah, I think the food thing, like, I had always loved food. My mom is an amazing cook. I still don't think I'll ever be as good of a cook as she is. Um, and like, I was very fortunate to have grown up eating a lot of delicious home-cooked food. And I don't know, maybe it's the part of it being Mexican, but food is like a huge part of our culture. And it's just like everything centered around food whenever we have gatherings. So... I think I always had like good taste or like a good palate um, and then cooking the food and like actually creating the meal that's that started developing like when I took that intro Sam at Stanford um, and just started getting more interested in, in like job opportunities around that and stuff too.
0: Gotcha yeah I totally agree with like the food connecting people I am Korean American and I think whenever we have family gatherings it's such a big part of like connecting with my relatives and just being closer to the culture. You also noted that there were three to five apprentices that you pick. Um, How do you normally go about choosing who gets to participate?
1: Yeah, I mean, the truth is, in the beginning, we were not naive, but we were very like, we'll work with whoever is interested. And we definitely had to change it over time. But I think one thing, I mean, one thing that I should mention, and I feel like it almost goes without saying, but we have to say it is like, Farming Hope wouldn't exist without the existence and the partnership of all the like organizations we've worked with in San Francisco, especially, that all work in homelessness. So there's like the TNDC, which is like the Tenderline Development Corporation, um, Downtown Streets team, which was started in Palo Alto, which does a, a really great job with their program, working with folks from experiencing homelessness. Um, the, like obviously Red F, there's a bunch of like kitchen, like super traditional like soup kitchens that we've worked with and talked to uh, like uh, Episcopal Community Services, which does similar. like there's so many organizations. And so thankfully with that, we were able to kind of like put ourselves in this environment of different social organizations and tell them like, hey, like this place is a shelter. This place like exposes people to these like work opportunities. Let's ask them and let's start like relying on them to um, kind of like forward people that might be interested in something more serious our way. So we we've developed this like really great collaborative network. Um, I think that's one thing that I love about food. And also I think about like social services, like I, I think people all have like the same, I don't know, passions or morals, like what they want to do. Obviously then it just becomes an issue of like time because everyone's so busy. But I think like if you're serious and this is something you want to do, uh, I think people are very receptive and like will be willing to work with you even if it, you know, it has its own challenges. So that's how we that's how we started developing like partnerships and getting people like referred to us. Um, and then we would basically do what like a typical restaurant would do, which is like do a little sit down interview, talk to them about their background, what they want to do, and then actually have them work in the kitchen, like do a little like a tryout for a day um, and see like what their work habits are like and see if they're teachable. Um, a lot of times when we would do that, yeah, I would see like how they communicate, like teach them some really basics I think communication in a kitchen is super important that's one of the first things I learned it's just like there's it's a it's an environment where a lot of people are working and there's a lot of like sharp things and hot things so you need to be able to communicate when you're moving around a kitchen and there's dangerous stuff and if somebody can't do that like even like on day one that's that's like a big red flag so yeah a combination of getting referrals and then also like trying them out and seeing honestly seeing if it's a good fit for them too because they might They might have never worked in a kitchen before and might realize like, oh, it's not for them.
0: Yeah, I think that really highlights, first of all, how in order to create change, we require a lot of partners, like people who care about the same mission. Um, And that's super interesting to hear about the restaurant interview. I've never heard about it before, but that process seems to be um, a good one.
1: I like, I wish, I feel like in my ideal world, everybody has worked at a restaurant because it's such a yeah. like, for lack of better words, it's like such a shit show sometimes. And I think mm. understanding what that type of like workplace and environment is and what goes into doing like all of our service industry, I think just builds better, like empathy, you know, like the next time you order from a place right. and they're a little late or like something happens, you might be like, okay, I understand Like there's a lot of things that could be going wrong. And it's a very, very human industry. Um, yeah. Mm.
0: Passy. so you've been there for many years yeah um could you share with us one or two stories of individuals whose lives have been changed by farming hope
1: yeah definitely um there's like there's a bunch of stories I could share um I think one that has always stuck out to me and I think that I'll remember like forever is one of our first one of our first apprentices in in San Francisco this is maybe like the fifth or sixth person we were working with um his name is Philip um and he was like slightly older black gentleman. I think he was in his like mid forties. Um, and he was actually very recently homeless. He had been with his wife or partner for, for a while and they had a separation and he, and he left and he didn't have anywhere to go. Like he just had nowhere to go. So he ended up staying at a shelter called Hospitality House. That um, was an all it's, it's male shelter in San Francisco. And he was having a really tough time. He couldn't find work. I I believe he had had a car, but he had like got rid of it because he couldn't take care of it. Um, And we found out through him, through like the hospitality house, they recommended he work with us. And I remember like, you know, having him come and try out, at that time we were working in like a church kitchen and making food for the farmer's market. And I was just like, oh, like this guy, he's definitely teachable. He has like the right attitude, like he wants to learn. Um, He's like a friendly gentleman, like uh, we're gonna give him a shot. And yeah, I think, like Philip he's definitely one of the one of like, I think, the cases that was a little bit more difficult in terms of the barriers that he faced. Um, He's also like one of our all stars. I think that ended up becoming like a really amazing, like apprentice and then going on to do some really awesome stuff. But um, what I mean by having barriers was he like early on, like I would say after like a month Um, He decided to purchase a car because he, he just like was tired of staying at the hospitality house. He wanted his own thing. And I think one of the things that he, that he started to deal with after buying a car was just like, if you don't have a house with a parking garage, it's really hard to keep a car in San Francisco. Like everywhere you park, there's like no stop or no parking signs. You have to like know when to move your car. in the area that his, that his shelter was, it's all parking meters. So he and he started racking up a bunch of tickets, um, and they were they were causing him a lot of stress. Like I remember, he would come into work and he would just be really, really, really razzled up. Um, and there were a lot of times where I would have to like take him aside or take him outside and be like, oh Philip, like, what's going on? Like, tell me." Um, and he would just kind of like break down. And it was just such a surreal experience to to be like, "Whoa, like, I just I'm like one year into this work or like barely starting this this like nonprofit work, and I'm like." working this closely with people and they're like sharing their issues with me like this is this is something it's a very it's very much a privilege to have this work and also like it's a big responsibility and I think it wasn't it wasn't a challenge for me I like I, I think I, I took it well at the time but it's just something kind of crazy and I remember one day like he was just stressing out about gas money he was literally like I'd like I have no money to to get to my car to to go back to where I was like I like I can't wait for like this paycheck etc cetera, etc cetera. um and I think it just shows you um, like the the quality of your life or how your life can be affected when you're living in poverty, when you're living like literally paycheck to paycheck or not even paycheck to paycheck, like you're missing money in between. Um, we were able to work out some stuff to make sure that he could get his gas and make sure that he could like continue to work with us. And he ended up being like a really big lead. He ended up like, we used his car um and and we like uh, compensated him for it to actually transfer the stuff from our kitchen to the farmers market. Before that, I had been doing it. Um, so we gave him a, kind of like a pay raise and more responsibility, and he took it up. Like he was happy to do it. He he wanted to take more opportunities and more responsibility. Um, and yeah, once I think he he ended up working with us for a little bit longer since he took like a, a more managerial role in the farmers market. But once once he was ready to move on and we graduated him, he secured a spot at this really awesome. Um, it's like a, uh, it's like a janitorial services based on Alameda, or not based on Alameda. Excuse me. It's a general janitorial services program based on Treasure Island, where he became, he went through their training program and became a manager, and now he trains people, um, in kind of similar places that are working their way out or getting or getting like their first job. Uh, trains them to to do custodial services. Um, and we've only heard like really good things since, of him since then. He, and thankfully, he was actually able to to like s- smooth things out with his partner from before, and they live together. And he's doing much much better now than than when he when we first met him. So that's that's one story. Philip, um, I think, just all the struggles that he went through, and and just how he how he was in in the face of so much so much challenge, so much adversity, he was able to overcome it. Um, And, yeah, I feel super grateful to have been part of, like, his journey to to get back on his feet.
0: Yeah, wow. Um, Seems like Philip really came full circle from first joining Farming Hope and graduating and doing his own service back to the community.
1: yeah. Um, I think and so too. and I, th- I think it was all in him all along. I think you know he I think he just needed somebody to take a chance on him. so i was I was just really grateful to be able to to be in that position to take that chance
0: and I think if farming Hope is able to change the lives of even like ten percent or a small proportion of these apprentices and turn them into people change agents in the community, I would say that's huge success in itself,
1: yeah. If, if Jamie was listening to you right now, he'd be like, yes. because <laughs> We've had a lot of conversations about how, you know, obviously we're we're working with people to try to get them employed, but we really do want them to be like change makers in their community and to be examples and to just go forward mm-hmm. and continue to yeah. like good change.
0: Definitely. Taking a step back, looking at your journey with Farming Hope, um, what are some challenges that you faced while running the organization and maybe some key learnings that you took away while growing a nonprofit from
1: scratch? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so many. I feel like challenges while starting a nonprofit it could be its own like 2-hour podcast if it wanted to. But um yeah, I think I think the reality of starting any small business is like there's nothing all it is is when you when you start a small business it's like a commitment to solving cha- like a bunch of little challenges along the way um and I don't think that like it being a nonprofit made any of that easier I, I think if anything sometimes like Jamie and I referred to it as like we're like small business entrepreneurs but on hard mode <laughs> um because non- the nonprofit world is so like Insane in terms of finding funding, um, and in some ways, like how old it is. But yeah, I would say I would say one of the first big challenges that we experienced um, was just that issue of funding. Um, I think in general in the nonprofit world, like there's a few big sources of funding in terms of like the government, um, private organizations, grants, etc. But there aren't there isn't enough funding that specifically works towards like more innovative ideas or ideas that don't have like a big team that have quantitative results um and i think you know as much as we tried to put our results in quantitative measures it just the reality of it was like our work was much more qualitative um right like we were transforming and trying to help individual people I and mean, it looked a little different for every person so that was tough i think Especially in the beginning, like a lot of grants or things we would apply to we wouldn't get and people would say like, Oh, like, no, we want you to feed more people or like, Oh, no, like what, like, we're going to give you $20,000 only for you to work with three people a year. Um, and so that was an interesting challenge in itself because I think Jamie and I were trying to also fight this stereotype that like Yeah, actually, it does cost $20,000 to work with three people a year like these are human lives that we're talking about and like life is precious and life is expensive like Twenty thousand dollars actually to us doesn't sound like a lot of money to transform the lives of three people, so I think there was a lot of these like stigmas and and I don't know a lot of these like old school metrics of like we can feed thousands of people for you know this much money, Um, so funding was always a big issue, always a huge challenge. Um, Let's see. I mean, I guess I guess like really quickly to to share like how we were able to do that is I think we were just able to find like. A lot of private donors that really cared about our cause in the beginning that were like early supporters that helped us just like exist and continue to do it and then once we got to a certain size we started being able to approach like smaller foundations um that like kind of understood like oh this is like a new thing or this is like a relatively new thing um and we can give you like this much money like you know i think the first the first grant that we secured was through the Silicon, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, and it was like twenty thousand dollars, and we were like, "Oh my God!" Like it was like so much money. Me and Jamie literally celebrated, um, and that that like helped us. I think that opened up a lot of doors. And there's also that there's also that's also like an issue in the nonprofit world. Like, you don't really people aren't really comfortable giving you money until you've gotten money from somebody else. It's but it's like, how am I supposed to get money if nobody else wants to give me money, right? It's like the classic like. After you get out of college, like people want work experience, but you don't have work experience. Like how are you supposed to get work experience if nobody wants to give you work experience? So that was definitely a big challenge. Um, And and money always continued to be a challenge. I think only recently did Farming Hope get into like a really good financial situation, which like I'm super proud of them for um, and they should feel super proud of also. So it's, it's in such a great place now. Like even, even amidst the pandemic, I think um, Farming Hope has been able to like kind of pivot um and basically basically, the long story short there was so we were selling food out of a cafe and like restaurant and doing some catering stuff and once once the covid pandemic began um like all of that was shut down um but jamie and the rest of the team was able to get a contract to do some meals for shelters in the city and i think they're they're providing Like anywhere between like one to three thousand meals a week to different shelters in the city, Um, and those are like contracted meals that they're getting money for. Um, And and farming hope is doing really well now because they have this like steady income and they're able to get a bigger space where they can make all these meals. And in terms of like the impact, they're feeding way more people too. It's super cool. So yeah, I don't know. There are like challenges literally everywhere along the way, but I think that's one thing that Jamie, Jamie, and I always did well or always share in common is just like okay how do we face this challenge? Like, how do we, you know, not think about it being this, like, unsurmountable thing, but how can we actually legitimately make it work?
0: Yeah, it's great to hear how you were able to raise money through private donations, through, um, like, foundations, and now that Farming Hope is doing great, even amidst the pandemic. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, especially because I think like during a pandemic is probably when this type of service is needed most, and because, like right. the people, the people that are suffering the most from the issues around a pandemic are, folks living in poverty or experiencing poverty, folks that are homeless, folks that are incarcerated or like recently incarcerated.
0: Now, taking a look at Farming Hope's main accomplishments, what would you say are some of the key accomplishments that? Farming Hope has had in the past few years.
1: Yeah, um, there's there's a bunch. I mean, I think there's a bunch of like personal accomplishments, and then there's like more organizational ones. I think, I think like some of the accomplishments that I feel most proud of are like in my time, we worked with like over twenty different apprentices that we were able to put through our program and transition towards a different opportunity. Um, I. Also like, I felt pretty good about being able to like make this organization and pay like a, a competitive salary in the nonprofit worlds, which is, I mean, it's kind of sad that we were paying a competitive salary because it was like like the, the salary for people working in nonprofits in the city is like, the starting salary is really ridiculously low, like absolutely unacceptably low. <laughs> um, but I think the fact that we were able to offer like a competitive salary even in that industry and even like for what our our standards were, I think that spoke to like the success and the accomplishment that we had. Um, I think building the community like at, at one point we were doing pop up dinners like every week and we would bring together this like amazing diversity. Uh, like this amazing diverse group of people that would be like me and Jamie's friends, people that had heard about us through random like connections, we would invite a lot of individuals experiencing homelessness as guests. Like, uh, those are some of the experiences that I miss the most, uh, being able to get together in like a room full of 50 people and serve like a four course meal, and there would like the tables we would mix up. Um, one thing that Jamie and I really loved to do was at the very least for dessert. Uh, we would make people like grab the dessert and sit somewhere new, uh, just because like it would foster more of a community and when we would always ask like community centric questions and ask people to share out. And it was really cool I think there was these really transformative experiences for everybody involved, um, not just for the for our apprentices or for our invited guests, but also for people that were paying guests that just wanted to find more out about like their neighbors and what they could do to help. So those are the, I think when I'm looking back, those are accomplishments that I'm really proud of. Obviously like on an organizational level, like just opening up our first cafe, that was pretty dope. Um, it was a lot of work, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. I, I like, i legitimately, I think worked every single day for a whole month like without any time off, like when we were opening it in the in like the first month that we were open. But it was fine. I mean it was fun in a in a weird way. Um yeah, I think I mean I even and even me after me leaving, like them securing the contracted work to provide meals with shelters is like a huge accomplishment. Um, They're like they're like Farming Hope is about to release some really big news about like the future of the org um, and having like a new home that I think it's like a very very big accomplishment. It's something that Jamie and I were working on for like at least two years when I was there or like a year and a half, and like there was these conversations and working with partner orgs to make this happen and it's kind of finally coming together. Yeah, I think like every everything I don't know, and it's cool it's cool to remember this, but I definitely remember along the way it was hard to celebrate like. I think that's one thing I, I would for sure tell myself and like a next project or anybody else out there like starting something like you have to take those moments and celebrate them like every little accomplishment because um I don't know like if you're not going to do it if you're not going to do those and do those then like nobody ever will. Um, I think those are super important to recognize.
0: Right like really enjoy the journey. Yeah. The pop-up dinners, the first cafe those are all things that like honestly i would love to attend and those seem like such great environments and places to they people they're super
1: fun super community oriented honestly i think like i don't know i've been into a lot of i've been in a lot of rooms and a lot of places especially in san francisco with different people represented and i i genuinely think like the farming hope events that we would run were some of the most like representative in terms of who's there and also some of the most like genuine experiences. Like I I can't tell you how many events that I went to and where people are like, yeah, we want to do this dinner so we can create a social dialogue around this issue. And then you go there and it's just a bunch of like, there's like a bunch of rich white people or a bunch of people that can like afford to do that on like a weekday night or whatever. And it's like, is this really a dialogue? If it's everybody from the same background and like not actually people who represent like even the city or the town or the block that you're living on. So I think the events for sure, once once events are back up for sure should go. And the food, the food isn't too bad either. I mean, like <laughs> we had some we had some fun stuff. We we for our for our second uh, yeah, our second, second annual anniversary. I think this is right. It might be third and somebody will have to correct me later. But um we we like partnered with a Michelin restaurant called Mr. Jews in Chinatown. And we like had their whole space and we threw like a big thing and got had food donated from different restaurants around the city and around the bay. And um, that was like a lot, that was a lot of fun too.
0: Uh, sounds amazing. Yeah, so for our last question, um, I think throughout this interview, uh, we touched upon a lot of social issues in the community. What would you say to young people who hope to address these social issues such as food insecurity, homelessness, or other issues?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think first and foremost, what I would say is like keep asking questions. I think there aren't enough people asking important questions to the people that matter. Um, so it's like keep asking questions and also like are you asking the right people the questions, right? I think like there are some questions that where it's appropriate to ask like your professor or someone that you know that's in a position of power, and then I think it's, there are a lot of questions that are super important that are just like literally your neighbor or somebody that like lives in a community that you're interested in working in. Um, and they don't have to have any formal background or experience, but they they can have as much or sometimes even more to tell you about an issue than like your professor just from lived experience. So I think I think that's one big thing, like do, do not discount the like education and the background of someone that doesn't have a formal education or background. Um, I think that's that's how we've had Farming Hope. That's how we created Farming Hope, just by like really working and co-creating this thing with people experiencing homelessness and asking for feedback along the way and listening to their needs and their problems and trying to to create solutions that worked with them. Um, so that's, that's the first thing that I would say. Um, the second thing that I would say, and I usually talk about this at some point when people ask me about like starting your own nonprofit. So the second thing that I would say is, don't start your own nonprofit. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of unnecessary parts of like starting your own business that you don't necess- that you don't have to go through. And I think there are a lot of organizations that already exist out there that have the connections, that have the resources, and are interested in doing like more innovative work, but just don't have like the youth, they don't have the energy, don't have the people to do it. So I think. I don't know. I like I hear. I feel like I hear this stereotype or archetype of a student that's like applying to Stanford or going to Stanford or you know like some big school. It's like, oh yeah, I started my own nonprofit and doing this thing, et cetera. Et cetera. And like I've even talked to some students that have been like, oh like I want to start my own nonprofit doing this thing, and I'm like, well, do you know any other organizations that are already working in that thing and like. Do you have a very clear articulated reason why you want to start this nonprofit and not just work with one that already exists? I think. Um, like looking back, I think we got to the point where it was necessary for Farming Hope to start our own nonprofit, but in some ways, we actually like wanted to join other groups. And when it wasn't when it became not feasible or when we tried that and it didn't work, that's when we like became our own, like fully certified 501c3. So yeah, I think. A lot of opportunities to create change. I think continue to ask questions if you have an innovative idea or something, like approach, approach a big organization. Maybe they're doing something like that already, or they would be interested in in like having you try it out. Um so that's that's what I would say. Yeah, just stay curious, ask questions, follow people that you that you think do cool shit on like Twitter, Instagram, I think I like became a much bigger part of like the food justice movement through Instagram, just like following other people and then attending their events. There are some really dope organizations and really cool like events that are happening, especially in the Bay Area. I think like we have such a big hub of food justice and social justice. Um, there's so much so much to look into.
0: Thank you for all this advice and seriously for all of your insight today. Kevin, it's been fantastic having you here to talk to me today thank you so much
1: yeah for sure and lastly for sure just wanted to plug again just go to farminghope.org to learn more or follow farming hope on instagram and twitter i believe just at farming hope there's always good good stuff being posted and you can learn a little bit more about it